0: Hello, I'm Jude Xavier Murphy, and you're listening to Catholic vs. Catholic.
1: If you would please just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you believe, and how you came to believe it.
0: Well, as uh, I say, I'm Jude Xavier. I'm a Catholic. I live in Australia. Uh, I live with my black Labrador, Henry, and my black cat, Bernadette, both named after the saints of the same names. And I've come from a church family myself. My father's family, being Murphy's in Australia, go back a long way and a long Catholic history. But my parents themselves weren't Catholic. They were both very dedicated church people. My father died about five years ago. And they brought me up in the faith and through my own journey, I think really made my way back to the Catholic church.
1: What were the first examples you had of religion in the home? Were you taught to pray before meals at night? Was there any discussion about God or Jesus or anything? Can you just talk a little bit about the atmosphere of religion in the home?
0: Absolutely. It was a home which was uh, really filled with a religious element to it. My father was a lay preacher in the Methodist church. We would always have grace before meals. We were taught to pray. We went to church on Sundays without fail. And uh, their own parents themselves as well were uh, church people. So it's really been infused in the family throughout. And at one point, my father did admit to me that he felt that he had, when he was younger, a vocation to the ministry, but also felt that his vocation was one of a husband and father. And certainly at a time when it was difficult with work, felt that that was what he had to focus on my mother would officially be an Anglican now, but uh, she's now in a Catholic nursing home and is ministered to by the sisters and the priests there. And my brother uh, worships in a community church in Queensland, Australia.
1: How did you start integrating religion into your own heart and mind as a very young person, like before puberty?
0: I, I think there On one level, it was just the very natural thing of what we were doing as a family. Uh, I was very much involved in youth groups in the church. So I really have always grown up as faith and worship as being a part of daily life. I have to admit I've never actually left worship. I've never left the church in any formal sense throughout my life. I've just progressed along the road, first of all, going to a more formal type of worship and a more sacramental one in the church of england the anglican church the episcopal church and then really finding that that journey needed to go home in a sense to rome and and that was the the final step of the journey i took
1: okay what role did authority play was it was it central in your in your um conversion into catholicism or if not what were the what were the crucial and essential components of catholicism that you needed or you felt that you needed
0: I think you've hit the nail on the head there, really, with authority. And I think what I was finding in other denominations before was either a lack of authority or a reluctance to partake of or use authority. And so for me, uh, authority was very much the, the crux of it. And hand in hand with authority was, as I said, that sense of coming home and of being something which was much more universal, diverse and universal.
1: Mm. What sort of character do you have? Are you intellectual? Are you uh, emotional? Are you spontaneous? Are you methodical? Tell me a little bit about your character as a person.
0: I'm quite methodical, but I'm also, I'm a writer, quite artistic as well. So I can be spontaneous in a planned way. (laughs) Um, I do think... Uh, with the heart, but I've also got a legal training. So it's it's quite a bit of a balancing act, I think, in my mind. I do respond very much to the beauty of Catholicism, the beauty of worship, music, images, but I also have a, a great interest in in the law and the, the words of it. And I did law at university as a degree, really, to get me somewhere, not actually to undertake. It's just I found it a very useful tool, in thinking and in writing. But the writing I've done, I've written two books of meditations on the rosary, one on the luminous mysteries of the rosary and one on the joyful mysteries. And I'm currently working on the third book on the sorrowful mysteries of the rosary. And I haven't done any paid broadcasting for a while now. So I've started up a few months ago a new podcast called Catholic Musings. It's a very simple weekly podcast, which looks at the Sunday mass readings and just has a bit of a reflection about them, not going too deep into them. The whole podcast is nine minutes long, and that includes uh, a short reflection plus music as well.
1: Okay. I'm curious about the Rosary Mysteries. You're planning on doing all four?
0: Yes, I am. Yes. The Luminous was actually the starting place. And when I wrote it, it was actually filling in a gap from another book written by a Methodist minister, John Neville Ward, who wrote a book a number of years ago called Five for Sorrow, Ten for Joy. And that book was 15 reflections on the 15 mysteries of the rosary as there were at that time from a Methodist background, which was quite interesting. But they're really beautifully crafted and, and written mysteries. And then, of course, we had the gift of the luminous mysteries. And I started thinking about perhaps filling that gap because John Neville Ward had since died, filling that gap with a new book to accompany it. But I have to say that as I was writing those mysteries, I then thought to myself, well, I can do the lot (laughs) and uh, I'd really like to do the lot. So I changed tack a bit and a change from the style that he had done, Five for Sorrow, Ten for Joy, and completed the first of the books which is Light from Light, the Luminous Mysteries of the Rosary, and then almost immediately went into writing Begotten Not Made, the Joyful Mysteries of the Rosary.
1: Can you talk to me in really brief overview about little things that maybe the listener hasn't considered when they prayed the rosary, even though they may have been praying the rosary their whole lives? You might have just a little idea or a little insight or a little inspiration that would help illuminate some of these things for us.
0: Certainly. The way the books themselves have been written is that they're not to be used while you're praying the rosary. They are very much based on the actual mysteries of the rosary. If you're using them with the rosary, I would suggest perhaps reading them before meditating upon the rosary, and maybe it might just get the brain going in a certain way. But each of the mysteries that I've written has been written about the place in the Holy Land where they are set. So I've done a number of pilgrimages to the Holy Land. And actually, pilgrimage is very much a recurring theme in what I write about and in what I talk about and the whole idea of being pilgrims. So each of the mysteries focuses on a place of pilgrimage. So for instance, in the uh, luminous mysteries uh, with the mystery of the transfiguration of Jesus, I write about the experience of going to Mount Tabor, of journeying up that hill, of the view from it. And also, in a sense, of the feeling of those disciples who were with him at the time. In the mystery of the birth at Bethlehem, I talk about the actual church of the Nativity and its history, and that almost immediate history after the death of Jesus of being a place of pilgrimage, and then being a place which the Romans tried to cover up and to hide as a place of pilgrimage, which did. The best thing for the church, because it almost put a neon light above it, saying, "This is where the birth took place." So, I think that's the general theme that I, that I have going through it, and will then be continuing with the the sorrowful mysteries. So, for instance, uh, I'm writing at the moment about the crucifixion and about even just in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, going up those few steps from the main door to where the actual site of the crucifixion is, and That idea that the closeness of of that to the tomb and which some people can't get their minds around. But when you actually look at the archaeology and you understand that site much more and you, you try and take away the image of the church that's there and go back to the history of the site, you can begin to see in a completely new way.
1: I pray the rosary every day or I try to. It took me years to get in the habit of saying it every day. It was really a struggle, I think, because of Satan. I was in the grip of Satan for 25 years before I converted in 2009. And so I I really think that he kept me away from the rosary. And I just struggled and I persisted. And now I'm in the habit of saying it every day. But the one thing I'm working on is entering more deeply into the meditations. Can you help me to understand the relationship between the visualization, which I love, and then the the Hail Marys, which I feel like I'm neglecting, I'm not paying attention to these words. I've heard different versions about how we're supposed to pay attention or not to the words of the Hail Mary. Can you just put my mind at, at ease that I'm not neglecting Mary by ignoring the words?
0: I don't think one is neglecting Mary at all by not necessarily being particular to every word and what you're saying in every word in the same way in the liturgy when we go to the mass there are definitely words and there are times when we say the words and we're not actually focusing on the words but we might be focusing on what's at home but at the same time we might be focusing on what we're visually seeing at the altar and there's certainly nothing wrong with with doing that listening to one of your podcasts yesterday and somebody was talking about the rosary and how they began really by working on the engine of the rosary and the words and then later on it transformed in a sense to the meditation and i think that's really what the words are there for the words are in a way the wallpaper of the room of meditation they're the music in the room of the meditation in which you're taking part and it just keeps you going In the same way in the mass, the priest has certain words that uh, he prays and that they're there in the missal that he is supposed to say. And they're just to keep him praying while he's doing something else. And I think that's what the words are doing in the rosary. They're keeping us praying whilst at the same time we're trying to do something else. Because there are times we can't meditate. And on those times we can't meditate, the words come to the forefront. And that's a good thing. And then on the times when we are meditating and we do sort of lose sense of the words, that also is a good thing. And I I think they're both there. And and that's the beauty of the the dynamic of the rosary and the balance of it.
1: Mm. What do you do when you find yourself rushing if you've had a long day and you don't have a lot of time? Would you rather skip a few decades and just go at a regular pace or would you burn through it like I do?
0: I think, again, it's that that dual nature of the rosary, that there are times I would go through it quickly and, and just feel I've at least accomplished something in a word way. But then there are times I would just focus on the one decade. And again, it's this whole area of there's no right or wrong. And I think this is one thing that many people have coming to the church and converts to Catholicism, converts to Christianity as a whole, worrying sometimes about Getting the small things right when actually that's there to help you enter into the larger mystery.
1: Nice. Yeah, I like your approach where it's an organic whole, it's flexible, it's adaptable, and you're in relationship. It sounds like a very natural way to approach prayer in general. So I like that. I appreciate that answer. Um, I want to segue now into Marian apparitions. What do you think about Fatima? That apparition, and maybe some of the other ones, maybe um, some of your favorite Marian apparitions, please.
0: Fatima just really interests me, and I would very much like to go there, and I haven't been there. Uh, but everything I see about Fatima just invigorates me more and more about the rosary, and indeed about the revelation of God himself. I've been to uh, a couple of shrines of Our Lady. I've been to Knock in Ireland, where the Holy Father has just been. But also I lived in England for quite a while and I've been to Walsingham in England. And I don't know if you're familiar with there, but that goes back to the 1060s and was a shrine which was and is still known as England's Nazareth because it was at a time when it was dangerous to travel to the Holy Land. And so there was a holy house built there and it became England's Nazareth. It was a shrine which was destroyed by Henry VIII. And interestingly enough, was restored by an Anglican priest, Father Hope Patton. But now there is also a a Catholic shrine, which is based at the Slipper Chapel, the chapel uh, a mile out of the village where people took their shoes off and made that final pilgrimage into Walsingham itself. Uh, So it's a very interesting place of not just the appearance of Our Lady, of healing, but also of ecumenism there between the Church of England and the Catholic Church in England. In Australia, we don't really have a visitation of Our Lady. But I I think, again, one can make these spiritual pilgrimages to places. So in the same way that I think uh, pilgrimage to the Holy Land does an incredible amount for one, when one can't go there, one can actually make a spiritual pilgrimage in the same way Walsingham itself was a spiritual pilgrimage to Nazareth.
1: I don't want to get negative, but I sometimes ask my guests about Medjugorje. I'm firmly convinced it's demonic. What have you heard? What do you think? What's your hunch about Medjugorje?
0: I can't myself give my own view on it because I've not been there, but I do know certainly one person who has been there who was just transfixed by it and felt uh, an incredible presence and said that he saw the dancing sun while he was there at the end of the day, people are finding there a presence of God, and they are finding an element of healing and reconciliation. And I think that's the best gift that it has. But I I have to say, I wouldn't want to judge too much on a place that I hadn't been to, or to be fair, read enough about. Mm.
1: Yeah, I'm just currently reading a big fat book uh, that's very critical of it. So that's probably where I get a lot of my perspective. But even before reading this book, I was suspicious. I want to talk about Saint Louis de Montfort. He's one of my favorite saints. And he's very, very, very important in terms of my devotion to the rosary, and my devotion to Mary. And I've done the consecration. Have you done that consecration or Saint Maximilian Kolbe's consecration or any consecration to Mary? No, I haven't. I've done
0: uh, consecrations to the Immaculate Heart of Mary but I haven't done the the one that you've just been describing and I'd be very interested to know more about it uh, and the effect that it's had upon you.
1: The basic idea is much like Saint Thérèse de Lisieux, you know, the little flower, much like her little way. Saint Louis de Montfort talks about the little way, the easiest way to heaven. The easiest way to heaven is through Mary, because instead of chiseling a big block of marble arduously, you just melt yourself and pour yourself into the mold of Mary. And it's quick, it's easy, it's cheap, and it's the best. So do you have any favorite Marian, particularly Marian saints like St. Bernard? All of the saints are, are Marian, but some more emphasize it more than others. Who are some of your favorite Marian saints? Um, I was all prepared just to come out with general saints, I have to say, having heard your podcast
0: before, but now you focused it on, on Marian saints. Um, <laughs> uh, well, when I was actually thinking about saints generally, the one saint I actually included was Mary herself, because I, I think going back to what you just said there about chiseling the rock, there's no need to reinvent the wheel. We have in Mary, the only person that we know of who knew of our Lord from before his birth right through to the Pentecost uh, day, because everybody else that is mentioned either died before the the crucifixion or came into his life later on. There may obviously have been other people that knew him throughout, but nobody is recorded unlike Mary. So I, I think for her, it really is that case of not needing to reinvent the wheel, and to see the the perfect example of not just motherhood, but of sainthood. I think when it comes to Marian saints, I think one that takes the name of Mary is our own saint in Australia, Mary of the Cross, uh, who is Mary MacKillop, who was not so long ago canonized. And uh, she was a woman who uh, lived a very hard life in Australia at the time, uh, our first saint, but she had a, a great work and vocation in the teaching of the young and of children, but she was also excommunicated from the church at one point. And the strong Australian perseverance that she has echoes that incredible perseverance of Our Lady, who was at the foot of the cross and just experienced so much suffering of the soul and suffering of the heart and I, I align that very much to Mary MacKillop, Mary of the Cross, who suffered so much in her excommunication, but then was able to rejoice, in a sense, in that resurrection of being reconciled with the church.
1: Who are some of your other general favorite saints? I, I
0: can't go beyond my own name, my confirmation name and Jude Xavier. And Jude particularly because I've been through some fairly drastic uh, moments in my life and turn to Saint Jude in novenas to St Jude. and certainly you know that that whole adage of prayer is never answered as as we might ask of it and and that certainly was the case in my life. but uh, at the same time I do know that those novenas to Saint Jude have borne so much fruit and I can't underestimate the importance of anybody who's going through a a difficult time in their own life, turning to St. Jude and entering into novenas to him. And Xavier, uh, really, because I grew up in Asia, I've spent a lot of my time in Asia, and just as somebody who's brought the gospel to Asia, but also was on the precipice of bringing it to China and dying on the edge of, of the gateway to China, a bit like Moses seeing the promised land, But at the same time, what Francis Xavier has given to Asia and the building up of the faith there. So, yes, certainly my history growing up in in Asia has been one that means that uh, Francis Xavier is a very important saint in my life.
1: I want to get your opinion, please, on China, because I have a friend that lives in Taiwan and he's very, 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 very annoyed with Pope Francis and with the Catholic Church. Uh, What is your perspective on that? Because my only defense of the Pope and the church is in very, very general terms, namely that the Pope does not have ill will to harm anyone in Taiwan. He's not seeking to do anything evil. But what can you say more specifically about the geopolitical nonsense that I hate so much, but which is taking place in the church in China?
0: I think that uh, the the church has got to do something with with China. And I have to say that the small movements that we've seen by the Holy Father on the outside, which obviously we don't know necessarily what is going on on the inside and underneath, I think they're important and I think they're necessary. At the end of the day, I think we only have to look at what happened to Eastern Europe and to Poland and the work of uh, John Paul II there to realize just how much possibility there is in the papacy and the opportunities that that are there for change china will not change overnight but it also has to be dealt with in a completely different diplomatic way from many other countries and that's not because they're special it's just because of a different way that they undertake things i don't think necessarily dealing with them on that level excuses abuse i i don't but i think at the same time you can't not try and And work for uh, the future of the church and also in a sense the future of religion and religious liberty in China without conversation and and without some sort of interplay with them. So I certainly understand uh, what your friend in Taiwan would be thinking. I've spent a a lot of my life in Hong Kong which of course has undergone a, a great transformation from the end of British colonial rule to now being part of China again with the reunification and there indeed are, are worries for the future for religious liberty and what they see as happening in China. I think really that's as much as I'd probably be prepared to, to, to say on the matter. I, I just think the important thing is to to pray for uh, the future and of religion in China for Catholics who are there and not to forget to pray for those who are in the wake of it, and that's places like Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Macau.
1: Mm. Since we're speaking about Pope Francis, do you mind giving a sort of general defense of his pontificate, of his character, of his unique... Uh, fast and loose approach to pastoral care can you defend him in a way that atheists and and protestants can sort of appreciate and and uh, actually digest and come away thinking hey maybe he's not so bad i think in
0: some ways actually it's many atheists and protestants who i've i've met who have a higher regard for him <laughs> than some catholics um, <laughs> I I certainly was a a great admirer of Pope Benedict, but I don't see myself in one camp or another, you know, for Cephas or Paul or whatever. At the end of the day, the Pope is the Pope. He is there uh, by the grace of God and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And as a result of that, I I certainly give him my allegiance as the Pope. I I think he has different ways of doing things, Uh, but then there have been very many different ways... Uh, for quite a long time. I I think we've experienced such a long papacy in John Paul II that we sometimes forget how the papacy can change very easily in its style and the way it's presented from one pope to the next. And I think then the the fact of after having such a long papacy with John Paul II to Benedict, which wasn't maybe such a a great transference unless you were the, the liberal media and then to francis who certainly is a very different style but at the end of the day is is the holy father
1: <laughs> <laughs> i hate politics but i want your perspective on this whole left right conservative liberal progressive split that is dominant in the west ever since the french revolution really i've met a lot of sedevacantists online and they're very they're very hateful they're very rebellious against the church there are other people on the right also within the church that are antagonistic towards anything that they think might be left-leaning or, in their view, socialist or communist. And far from it. The church's position on communism is is very clear, but they still get paranoid about it. We all know about people that are on the left in the church that are fighting for abortion and women's ordination. But what about people on the right within the church? What's your experience? And do you identify left, right, center, or... Do you just identify as a Catholic?
0: I I identify as a Catholic. I think that that's got to be my answer. I certainly, when it comes to sedificantists, just find the whole situation bizarre. So uh, I I don't have any time for that. I have friends on both (laughs) the right and maybe not the extreme left of the, the Catholic Church, but certainly of the left. I have those who would like to see changes. I have those who certainly think that the changes have gone too far, My Latin is appalling, but I've certainly worshipped at Latin masses and I've worshipped at uh, very liberal centres. My natural milieu is to go somewhere which which perhaps is more traditional in its worship, but uh, using the Novus Ordo. I think at the end of the day, everyone is a part of the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church is made up of so many members that they will have different political views and they'll bring those different political views into the church sphere. But at the same time, I think as Catholics... There has to be that understanding of what the church is and what the church says. And it doesn't say that because of its political power. It says that because of its spiritual role.
1: Mm. I don't like talking about it, but what do you think about the sex abuse scandal or whatever it's called in the U.S. right now? Well, we have the same. Yeah, you have the same thing in Australia, right? in,
0: In Australia, very much so. In Australia, it's not helped by uh, the fact that we have a, a very anti-church media, and so uh, a lot of strong calls really for the church just to be thrown away and uh, to lose everything that it has without actually acknowledging the good work it does. None of us are fortunate to be living uh, at a time of this going on, but it will pass, and I, I think that is the most important thing. The church and society as a whole has learnt so much As a result of this and continues to learn and it will one day be history and we still have the gospel to preach and the gospel to get on with and i don't think that we can be taken away from that and i think part of that is we we saw that in the holy father's prayer recently of wanting in a sense the guidance of when to know to speak and when to know to be quiet and that is important because as terrible as the the current scandals are, the church still can't be dictated to in its agenda by a liberal world. It still has to put the gospel to the world and to stand up and to proclaim the faith.
1: I'm a convert to the faith as an adult. I converted in 2009 at the age of 39. And I went from Atheist to monotheist in a heartbeat. And then I approached Catholicism. I was surprised how open I was to it, but it was St. Augustine's Confessions that really melted my heart. Now, my question for you has to do with ecumenism and dialogue with non Catholics. Why do people not focus on doctrine? For example, I have a lot of acquaintances on Facebook who talk about the pedophilia, they talk about the homosexuality in the church. And when I come back with a very simple question, well, what does the church teach about homosexuality? What does the church teach about pedophilia? What does the church teach about rape? They don't want to talk about what the church actually teaches as doctrine. They just want to point and make fun of those who fail to rise up to the church's doctrine. Please explain to me what's going on here. Are they supernaturally blind or am I supernaturally given the gift of faith so that I can see these things that they can't see? Well,
0: I I think, in first of all, definitely in the sealing of the Holy Spirit, we are given those gifts. So there's no doubt that we are given gifts to help us on that Christian journey in which we are to nurture. But I think another element in it is your purpose and your wanting to find out is clear because of your faith and where you want to be. That is a very different agenda from somebody who is wanting to cut down. They're not there to grow their understanding of what the church is. I mean in Australia I don't know if you have the same way you are we have the the phrase the tall poppy syndrome where uh, certainly in the media and so on people are uh, allowed to rise up as celebrities or something and then cut down uh, as the tall poppy people are enjoying the opportunity to cut down
1: mm. I, again, I don't want to dwell on the negative, but I do want your feedback. I ask a lot of my Catholic guests, my faithful Catholic guests, about the wolves in sheep's clothing that Jesus warned us about. Do you have any sense of proportion? Like, is it is it something we could just dismiss as negligible numbers, or is it is it significant? What's your position on that?
0: Well, I think one, the number one is significant. You know, it doesn't matter how many there are. If it's happening, it is significant. I think there's a couple of things to bear in mind or to keep in mind throughout it. Certainly when it comes to priests, on on the level of the sacraments and so on is the importance of remembering the efficacy of the sacraments, no matter what that person believes or what they're doing. And I think that's important for all Catholic uh, faithful to remember that uh, the sacraments are not affected by the behavior of the, the people that are distributing them. The other part of it is prayer, to pray for the priests. It's not just those on the outside of the church who can be converted, even priests who have gone astray, who are lost, can be converted again and can be helped on that road to conversion. And even those who aren't necessarily, you know, to use the phrase, wolves in cheap clothing, just the importance of praying for your priests, full stop. I remember I went to my parish church and Easter morning, and our priest came out. He was a wonderful man, and he just laid his soul bare, really, to the congregation and said, what a difficult time he was having. Please pray for me. And that's something that we should be doing for our priests every day. We cannot expect our priests to be men of prayer and love if we are not backing them up with prayer for that.
1: Mm. Pope Francis emphasizes the need to be cautious or wary of clericalism, falling into clericalism. It sounds like that is at the heart of your concern that we don't make a distance between us we are one people we are one we are all by virtue of baptism prophet priest and king so we can all support each other through prayer and the sacraments
0: certainly i mean we do have different roles and they are very specifically different roles and i think one of the problems with the term clericalism is people use that term to cover Priests who dress up like priests and uh, are seen as priests, and that's not clericalism. Clericalism is the abuse of the role and the structures within the role. Clericalism is when they're actually abusing the role that they have for their own gain, and certainly within some group within the church to do that. But uh, yes, again, it comes back. I, I think all all to the importance just of prayer. They pray for us at the altar. We have got to pray for them. If we're not praying for them, who is praying for the priests?
1: Mm. There's so many ways that you can move and develop. What are you excited about today for the near short-term future in your own faith journey?
0: I think one is uh, just knowing and learning more about other people's journey. And I'm rereading at the moment uh, Thomas Merton's Life and the Seven Story Mountain. And I just find each page of that almost an exciting venture. Um, he, he writes so well, but also just the very fact that this is somebody very close to our own lifetime who walked the streets of New York, and yet he has this wonderful ability to take us into that stillness of contemplative life. I, I think along with that of seeing other people's journey, and my my journey is one of pilgrimage, and pilgrimage, uh, as I said with my books, it is very much at the heart of a lot of what i write and what i i talk about and and how i interpret what i talk about particularly i think that idea that god himself is a pilgrim i think that we as humans make ourselves so self important that we end up claiming to be the ones who are looking for god and found jesus forgetting that actually Jesus found us a long time earlier than that, much, much earlier than that. And God is a pilgrim. And that's why I think that places of pilgrimage are so important, because they are places where prayer has been valid, as T.S. Eliot says in his poem, Little Gidding, you know, to kneel where prayer has been valid, where other people have prayed and where God knows that we are vulnerable to his love. And really that the barrier between heaven and earth is tissue thin. So for my excitement is to continue that pilgrimage, whether it's actually to places of pilgrimage, particularly the Holy Land, which I love so much, or the pilgrimage to mass each day. You know, if we can actually see going to mass as being a pilgrimage with a a purpose at the end of that journey, I, I think it transforms what going to mass is.
1: I want to ask you, because you have a podcast, how long have you been doing your podcast now?
0: Uh, the current podcast has been about three months. Yeah.
1: Okay. But this brings to mind the question of the new evangelization. What are the pros and the cons? What are the benefits and what are the dangers of putting myself out there with a religious podcast? Can you talk me through that?
0: Well, I think one of the dangers of any religious podcast is the authenticity of the message, the assurance of that authenticity because those of us who do podcasts are not licensed, in a sense, by bishops to do so. So there isn't a a license to to preach and to teach in the same way that one might have if one was uh, a deacon preaching at the Sunday Mass or anything like that. So I think that the biggest danger is the authenticity of the message, and I think it's a double-sided danger. I think it's for those who are looking for podcasts, and I think it's for all of us, myself and yourself included, Who are involved in those podcasts. And just to be very careful that we are in line with church teaching and to be very careful when we're looking for them that they are in line or that we can recognize when they're not. Because anybody can put up a podcast with the name Catholic in it and say anything. And of course, these days, people believe the first thing that they come across and find. But on the other hand, I think one of the advantages is almost incarnational because. It's people finding people who are very similar to them, who sometimes are struggling with the same questions they have. And it's a gateway for many people who are frightened to enter into a church. It's a gateway for them to begin to find the answers to those questions.
1: Mm. Based on what you heard from my two most recent interviews with Catholics, was there any red flag or orange flag or yellow flag that you noticed
0: no, and I think one of the good things was because it's not necessarily a didactic. Well, from what the two I heard, they're not didactic. They, they're they biographical. Yes, ex- exactly. And I think the ones that I try and do, I mean, I've had theological training, and I certainly, as I say, try as much as possible to include the catechism when when I can and when it's appropriate. But at the same time, they're reflections on the reading. They're not, I'm not necessarily teaching about the readings for the Sunday Mass. I'm just trying to give people an opportunity to be prepared for a Sunday with maybe something in mind that might then trigger them to look at the readings in a different way and to take from that Sunday Mass what the church and the priest or the deacon or the preacher who is licensed to preach then gives them as that nourishment for the week following.
1: Mm. I do have on my website and on all of my social media a disclaimer, and it says if ever I contradict Jesus Christ or the church, then I do so unwillingly and I'm happy to repent and recant and all that sort of thing. Okay, So I think that that's important. I think it's important that people know that I am a member of the church, but I'm not a licensed representative of the authentic teaching everything that comes out of my mouth, but at the same time, even the great saints like St. Augustine or St. Thomas Aquinas, they had opinions that differed from what was eventually established, and they may even have had some opinions, may have said some things that contradicted what was already established, but they did so unwillingly and certainly not as rebels, right? So I think that there's a wide margin and there's a lot of latitude for expressing ourselves, with a wholesome piety which is not maybe airtight, as long as we're willing to be corrected, this is the definition of heresy, is that you are obstinate in your refusal to be corrected, right? So as long as you're not obstinate... You know, if if anyone corrects me, I'm happy to accept the correction as long as the correction is actually Catholic. You know? I, I think
0: uh, one of my favorite books, uh, novels, is uh, Graham Greene's Monsignor Quixote. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it was made into a wonderful film, uh, which I think is only on VHS now with Alec Guinness and Leo McKern. But yeah, Graham Greene's Monsignor Quixote, which in which he goes on a travel with his communist friend, the mayor, and and one evening there drinking wine and they they go through a couple of bottles and the mayor says that he can't understand the trinity you know could the monsignor please explain it to him and and monsignor quixote rather beautifully says well you know you see these two bottles they're of the same substance of the same vine and yet you know they're like the trinity the father and the son the mayor understands this and then says well what about the holy spirit and they've had a third half bottle to drink as well. So they're quite drunk at this point. And Quixote says, oh, well, you know, the Holy Spirit is this third bottle. It gave us the kick that we need. And then almost immediately he goes into a depression because he has given wrong instruction because he has represented the Holy Spirit by a half bottle, whereas it should be a full bottle equal to the Father and the Son. And I think that's a beautiful image of even a a priest, albeit um, in a novel, even a priest acknowledging The need to ask for forgiveness for wrong instruction.
1: Mm. So at the end of my interviews, I always ask my guests to give a little message of hope. So just a general message, what could you say to anyone that might be out there listening now?
0: It's just to keep in mind that you are never alone. Uh, Even when you are physically alone, you always have that presence of God with you. And as you try and make your journey towards him, he is without a doubt trying to make that journey towards you, Um, again, coming to that whole idea of pilgrimage. Even, you know, if if you're not in a situation through money or health to make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, open the Gospels. There's a pilgrimage to the Holy Land there. And as you make that pilgrimage, know that the God of the Gospels, the God of the Holy Land is journeying towards you and will not leave you alone.
1: If you like your worldview, if you think it's well, if you got some questions, ask me and I'll tell. All you got to do is ask all
0: you got to do is mess.